I speak to you in the name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, the title of my sermon this morning is Getting a God's Eye View of Things. Today is Trinity Sunday. You might have noticed it's on the front of your bulletin. Now, it's completely impossible to explain the Trinity, the history of the way that the church came to understand that this was the truth about God, and the technical language that is involved in a little over 15 minutes. So I'm actually not going to try. I can assure you, though, that our understanding of God as triune is rooted in Scripture, especially in St. Paul and in St. John's letters and the gospel, and in the church's experience of God as it prayed and worshiped together over the centuries. Our understanding of the Trinity is most definitely not the result of some sort of power play in the ancient church that was designed to control dissent and make everyone believe the same thing. Now, I added that last sentence because once every two to five years, somebody writes an article or a book and that says exactly that, that the Trinity is all about a power play, and then everybody quotes it like it's some brand new revelation. I'm pretty sure that there's at least one person and probably more in this congregation that's read books that have said things like that. And the reason why this particular conspiracy theory has so much purpose is because culturally we are inclined to believe that all human interactions are about power and the exercise of power. That is a lie. It is no more true in an argument about the church than it is to say that all of your personal relationships are entirely about power and politics. If they are, we should have a talk. Now, over the last 10 years or so ago, or 10 years or so, rather, <laughs> excuse me, there's actually been a big shift in the objections that people have to believing in the Trinity or that cause them to reject Christianity altogether. These days, most people don't get all hung up on the question of whether or not God is three in one or where the Holy Spirit fits into their lives. They never get that far. What they get stuck on instead is Jesus. Now, it's the Christian teaching that Jesus is both fully human and fully divine, and that's where people get stuck. That and the idea that Jesus is somehow part of the Trinity and therefore part of God are now the biggest reasons that people give for either leaving the faith or never accepting the faith altogether. Now, it's not just a problem for people who have never been in church or who don't go to church anymore. It's a problem for those who have been brought up in the faith and are here more Sundays than not. 
In fact, more than 50% of American adults who attend church regularly believe that Jesus was a really great guy and a good teacher, but he was not God. And most of the people who believe that also believe that Jesus committed sins while he was in this life. And so he's no different from you or me. Now, this lack of understanding about the basic teachings of the Christian faith is a big reason why young people and so many of our older people stop coming to church and ultimately give up on their faith. If you don't understand something and you can't see how it might change your life or make your life better and it doesn't make any sense, why would you bother investing your valuable time in it? People who have grown up in the church and people who have attend church regularly can believe such things about Jesus, then we are faced with a colossal failure in the teaching and preaching of the faith. We have failed to give the faithful a Christian imagination and a worldview. We have failed to help them see the world from God's viewpoint. Now, teaching people to see things from a, with a God's eye view is the task of the church. That's why we're here, to learn how to see things from God's perspective and through God's eyes. And when people get hung up on who Jesus is or what Jesus really was, it represents a failure of that imagination and that teaching. Now, as human beings, we tend to see the world from our viewpoint, which is why Jesus being fully human and fully divine, or Jesus being born and conceived in a way that's different from other babies, or Jesus not being a sinner, or Jesus ascending into heaven, that's why all of that stuff makes so little sense to us. Because from down here, it's hard to imagine how it's connected up there. But what if we looked at it with God's eyes? What if we looked at the reason Christ came to this world with the eyes of God? What would we see then? Well, a great place to start is at the beginning of St. John's Gospel and the beginning of Genesis. The first sentences of John's Gospel say this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came to be through him, and without him nothing that is came to be. Now, the Greek word that's translated word with a capital W in that passage is the word logos. Now, logos can mean a word, like something you'd write on paper or read in a book. But here it takes on a much bigger meaning. Here it means something like the thought and the intent of God. So in Genesis, when God says, let there be light, 
it is that word with a capital W that says be. And this is why John says all things that came to be came to be through him. And without him, nothing came to be. The word expresses the creative desire of God. And it is that word that is the Son. So from the beginning, when the Spirit of God moved over the waters and the word of God said, be, we have a triune God. We also learned in Genesis that God creates human beings in God's image and that they are to be God's viceroys, the carriers of the knowledge of God and of relationship with God into the world that God creates. We also learn human beings are very bad at that task. They would rather be their own gods. The entire Old Testament, and for that matter, the history of the church, is filled with the stories of God trying to reach out and have an intimate relationship with human beings only to have them turn away and worship idols of their own making and especially the idol of themselves. Still, God loves and forgives and loves and forgives, but it doesn't get any better. So God decides that maybe it would be best to become more like human beings. That if God had a skin on like human beings, that intimate, faithful relationship for which human beings were created would be possible. If they could look at someone and say, there is Emmanuel, there is God with us, then perhaps they could turn their hearts to him. What God wanted from the moment of creation was the relationship of love and unity for which he created human beings. Perhaps if God had skin on like we do, it would be easier for us to fall in love with God and be in relationship with him. But how is that going to work? If God partakes, or rather, if God picks a particularly holy person and just moves into that person's heart and soul and mind, adopts that person, so to speak, it would mean that people would be giving their hearts and their souls and their minds and their worship to a creature that God had made. And God had explicitly commanded that they never do that. So that option was out. Besides that, even the most holy person in the world would have sinned at some point in his or her life. And how could God, who is perfect, perfect in love, in truth, in justice, in generosity, perfect in everything, be united with sin? It's a problem that's really quite difficult to solve. God needs to unite with a human, sinless human nature, but that human nature has to be so completely human that we will know that God knows, 
firsthand and by experience what it means to be human, to be tempted, to be afraid, to suffer, to know joy and to know love, all the things that make human beings what they are. And the only way for God to solve this problem is to be joined to fr- in human nature or to human nature from the very beginning of human life at conception. If this is not the case, then Jesus cannot, his claim to be considered fully human and fully divine is invalid. The best that such a person could claim is that for a while, God borrowed their people suit and wore it around. You see, when you look at the problem from God's side, it's the problem of making relationship possible, of freeing human beings from their bondage to sin and its consequences, to make it possible, as the old catechisms used to say, for the very purpose of human life to be loving and knowing and worshiping God and living in unity with God forever. That's what salvation means, to be restored to the proper relationship and in our proper place in creation with God. And the Gospels are the story of the Logos work in the person of Jesus and how he entered fully into human experience, including suffering and even death. And because the Gospels make it clear that the last enemy is death, it cannot hold God. Christ is resurrected, and God himself, the divine Logos, in flesh as Jesus Christ, shows us the way back to God's ultimate purpose for us. Now, to go back and answer another question I started at the beginning of this, why is it so important that Jesus know temptation, but that Jesus not sin? Well, for one thing, God is perfect in every way, including perfect in every virtue. And God cannot sin. But God did not want us to be able to say, you just don't understand me. You don't know what it's like to be human. And so he entered into all of human living, the joy and love, the fear, the anger, the despair, but he did not surrender to the power of sin. If Christ had sinned, he could not have defeated the power of death. He could not have shown us the way to something better and more perfect, and it would have made, made, excuse me, it would have made no sense for him to say, be holy or perfect even as your heavenly Father is holy or perfect. You know, when you look at the problem from God's perspective, it all makes sense. 
and the pieces fit together with lots less forcing or trimming to make them fit. We become receivers of God's work in the world. And we can resume our role as God's viceroys. But we don't have to do it alone because we are not completely dependent upon our own power and our imagination. The Spirit is with us to teach us and guide us. Now, far too many of us cannot even begin to imagine how to see the world or the Gospels through the eyes of God. We haven't been taught. Our imaginations have been left flabby and underdeveloped, and they're focused on imagining things only from our own little narrow point of view. And we, we fool ourselves into thinking that we can see the truth through that narrow little porthole that we have on the world. But in teaching and preaching, in sacraments, especially in prayer and in fellowship with one another, we can be taught to see the world with God's eyes. Because if we cannot see the world with God's eyes, we cannot know God, nor can we understand God's desires for us and for God's world. And this is an imaginative stance that we ought to learn how to do from the time we're this high. By the time we graduate from high school, we ought to be able to do it at least for a little bit. But it's also the reason our formation as Christians never ends. You don't grow out of Christian formation because training your imagination and learning to see the way that God sees takes time and commitment and desire. And it takes finding good teachers and a relationship with the Messiah. Now I grant you, that's all a whole lot to absorb. And it's more than any one of us could digest in one sitting. In this morning's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, that means us as well as the 12, that he understands we are weak and we need more guidance and assistance to fully understand what he tried to show us. So he will send the Spirit to teach and to guide. And when we come to church, we should expect the Holy Spirit to be here, not only to teach us and to guide us, but to give us a renewed imagination that reflects the mind of God. Now, how would that look in real life? Well, it could look like Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who was a young nun by herself who started with nothing, but saw in the people dying in the gutters of Calcutta, not worthless human beings who couldn't be touched for fear of contamination, but human beings made in the image of God who, when she looked at them with God's eyes, believed that they should die with dignity and under the care and love of Christ. It could look like this tiny woman 
who made the love of Christ so real in the world by the t- that by the time she died, she had attracted young women from all over the planet to join her in creating a worldwide sisterhood dedicated to spending their entire lives caring for others. It would look like really changing the world and not just arguing about it. Now, Mother Teresa is a really powerful and extraordinary example. But you could start smaller, although it's really hard to imagine starting smaller than one tiny little nun on the streets of Calcutta. But imagine, imagine seeing your family, your spouse, your friends through God's eyes. Imagine being able to know God's desires for them and making the love of Christ real in their lives. Imagine looking at your patients, your students, your clients, and all of those in the world around you with the eyes of God. And imagine if you came to church and every single Sunday, everything we did was designed to help you see the world others, and yourself as God sees. Imagine how the world would change if that's what we did every week. May it be so. Amen.